I'm Georgie Owen, and this is Conceiving It All, the podcast, where we discuss diet culture and fight fat phobia so that all people in all bodies can step into their power. I hope the lived experience and expertise shared in these podcasts helps you to explore your relationship with your body and self in a way that empowers you to feel that you're enough as you are, and that, regardless of the societal messaging you've absorbed, your body and all bodies are worthy. Follow me on Instagram at Conceiving It All to keep learning and unlearning with me. In the interview you're about to hear, I spoke with Hannah Dibney, who is a writer, disability advocate, and the editor-in-chief of Missing Perspectives, the intersectional feminist newsroom, which is dedicated to addressing marginalization of young women in news and pioneering lived experience journalism. She's just graduated. She was a finalist for the Women's Weekly Women of the Future Awards, was a Young Australian of the Year nominee, and has a book deal about, in her words, growing up disabled in a world not built for her body and about what it means to come of age in the world as we know it. Her advocacy is going from strength to strength. This is a name, a voice, and a person to support and to get excited about. I first came across Hannah's work through her Change.org petition to Disney, to create a Disney princess with disabilities, which has now been signed by almost 60,000 people. Captivating, intelligent, warm, authentic, and hilarious, Hannah completely won me over in this chat on a personal level. In terms of the content, this was a turning point for me in recognizing the fundamental importance of representation, and we're all indebted to Hannah for what she shares about her body and self. She's grounded, charming, and perceptive in a way that defies her age, likely because of the years she's lived. So immerse yourself in the joy and strength that is Hannah Dibney. The first question I love to ask everyone is, what is your favorite food memory? Probably having roast dinners or lunches with my mum's extended family. We'd all get together at my grandparents' And my, my grandma's kitchen was so small that she'd have to serve food on the ironing board because if you put three people in there, it was cramped and crowded. Having those moments where we're all together and you kind of have to sit around the dining table and eat in shifts because <laughs> there's not enough space, but it's just fun like that. I feel like roast dinners have such a fun spot in my heart. Now, mm-hmm. Hannah, I've seen you describe yourself as a disability activist and as a writer predominantly, Mm -hmm. but could you introduce yourself? How do you, I feel like you have this multifaceted identity and a big skill set. I've kind of accidentally become a multi-hyphenate over (laughs) over time. So I'm a writer and disability advocate, like you said. I'm also still a uni student. I'm a couple of weeks away from doing my final semester at uni. What are you studying? I do arts and international studies at the University of Wollongong. And then on top of kind of being a writer and disability advocate, I have recently become part of the Missing Perspectives team, um, which was a new initiative launched earlier this month, all about gender equity and Mm. uplifting the voices of women who are often missed in news, media, democracy Mm. and decision making. So I guess I qualify as the editor-in-chief of that. Is that your pursuit or is that with a team of people? That's with a team of people. So we have our founder, Phoebe Saintelin. She has a background working for the UN and was reading a report done by the Gates Foundation that basically said 
that women were woefully underrepresented just across the board in media mm-hmm. and in telling their own stories. And Phoebe's the sort of person who, when she sees a problem, she immediately goes, oh, I can fix that. So initially, Okay, we love Phoebe's. Yeah, we do love Phoebe's. So initially <laughs> I was just supposed to be a writer doing an article for her and then we kind of talked some more and connected some more and I helped her sort of build it into more of an actualized thing because she she didn't have the experience in terms of editorial and yeah here I am now as the editor-in-chief of it so and how can we we support that is it following missing perspectives on instagram Uh, following missing perspectives on instagram if there are any budding writers or poets or people who like submitting personal essays who might Mm. be listening to this who are women and that definition is inclusive by the way feel free we'd love to hear your voice we'd love to hear your story i actually wanted to talk to you georgie about maybe writing something for us i would absolutely love to what you were saying about how phoebe was looking into that gates report about how women are grossly underrepresented in the media and in telling their own stories it got me thinking about how while we do have women in australian media mm-hmm. we predominantly have thin white able-bodied women mm-hmm on our screens yes i think there was a there was a channel nine ad it was about promoting getting vaccinated and i was like the messaging is great but all of the women in this video look very similar they yeah they literally look like channel nine has created some sort of cookie cutter mold which is which isn't those women's it's not their fault it's not them at all and they're all brilliant at their jobs like, let's just stress that I'm not putting them down specifically. Mm. It's just, unfortunately, the majority of people that we see on our screen do look the same. The same time that that ad came out and Jan Fran, who I love. She's great. She, yeah, she shared it. That was the first time I saw it and I could not agree more. I respect those women as journalists and as yeah, women. They're, they're brilliant journalists. Yes, all of them. love the messaging, but it was just there was something so starkly wrong with that ad. And I think when I saw that ad, it was probably a similar time that I came across your account because I think it coincided with a little bit of what you've discussed before and your petition about having a disabled Disney princess. Could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how that started? And you might even want to, before you do that, talk about your own journey with disability yeah so for everyone listening who doesn't know i have cerebral palsy which is a condition that you get at birth and it's a physical and neurological condition that affects my gross and fine motor skills so that's everything from walking and balancing to being able to use a knife to handwriting so basically i navigate the world in a wheelchair that's my preferred mode of transport these days and that as you can imagine, no doubt comes with challenges. And that could be anything from a lack of representation on screen, which is what the Mm -hmm. Disabled Disney Princess petition is trying to address, to the more tangible restrictions of inaccessible spaces. So my own journey with disability, it's been a really interesting one because for a long time, I didn't like the fact that I was disabled. In fact, I would say... I would go so far as to say I pretty actively hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot of self-hatred and self-loathing mixed up in that, even though obviously none of the circumstances of what happened when I was born are my fault or or anyone's fault. It's just 
how the, the world works. None of the doctors did anything wrong. My parents didn't make any mistakes. It was just kind of a shitty game of chance, I guess. Mm. So I spent a long time not liking myself and also actively resisting the idea of being a disability advocate because I think I thought that if I did that, it would mean that my life would come to be defined by my disability, which right. when I was a teenager especially, who just desperately wanted to fit in. I, I wanted to run away from that as far as I possibly could. Now I understand that obviously my disability defines my life to the point that it shapes the way I view the world, it dictates what I value, what I see yeah. as important, how I approach certain situations, like my capacity for empathy, all that kind of stuff. So it's not a bad thing at all that it defines me. It's just not the only part of me. When do you think that shift happened of loathing the experience versus seeing seeing it as A, your reality, B, how you view the world, and C, your gift to the world in a way when you talk about empathy yeah. and your ability? Um, well, it kind of got to the point where I, I think I was already at uni and I was just like, I cannot keep doing this. It is exhausting. It mm. doesn't feel great. Like, we have to figure something out because... Whether we like it or not, this is who we are, and I'm stuck with this. Like, there's no, there's no point, there's no point fighting it anymore because it's not going anywhere. If if fighting it was going to have done anything, it would have done it by now. So yeah, I can stop exhausting myself and figure out how to make it work for me, or I can continue fighting it and basically burn myself to pieces. Mm. Um, which is not something that I wanted to do. It's like this so, quote, my therapist has told me, you can't hate yourself into a version of yourself that you love. Yeah, wow. The surrendering to it. That's really a succinct and powerful way of explaining, I think, exactly the journey that I've been on. And I wouldn't say that I'm at a place where I'm perfectly happy with everything and there are, it's it's all gone now, but mm. I'm definitely at a place where it's easier to breathe. And where I can mm. see the value in being a disability advocate. I think as well, part of it was just exhaustion from continually having to advocate for myself. That I didn't feel like I had any energy or any space or any right, really, to advocate for anybody else. Mm. But yeah. over these last, probably this last year or so, after I wrote an article for the ABC on ableism and, and how to be a good ally, the response to that kind of changed things because I was like oh wait people are listening people are hearing me and I don't have to jump up and down for people to hear me but like if I have a voice which to be quite frank many disabled people literally don't have like there's a lot of mm. non-verbal people with disabilities out there and I have the space and the privilege to be able to articulate it and ha have gone to a good school and I'm getting a university degree and doing all of those things when lots of disabled people don't get that experience, then I feel like I have a responsibility of sorts to advocate for my community, which is obviously a huge 180 shift from <laughs> where I was. Quite literally, your resilience just made my eyes prickle. Like, if we could all take even a little chunk of that attitude, I think we'd all be better off because oh, thanks. that perspective is, yeah, it's admirable. And I think you can feel it in your authenticity and your, it's like, Hannah, there's like this excitement in your words when you speak and when I've read them on your Instagram, 
And I think it kind of must reflect where you are in your journey now. Yeah. And I think as well, I've wanted to be doing what I'm doing, like in terms of writing, since I was four. Mm. So for it to, people will roll their eyes when I say finally be happening because I'm only 21. But <laughs> for it to finally be happening and like for me to feel like my voice is actually being heard i think there's a level of excitement of like i can't believe this is happening how how lucky am i and how lucky are we to get to listen and read hey well so disney princess petition talk to me about mm -hmm. how that came about what compelled you to do it was there a moment where you went nah i need to say something about this okay so to be honest the disabled disney princess idea has sort of lived in my head since i was a kid i guess because mm. I grew up not seeing anyone who looked like me on TV, in the movies I watched, in the books I read, or the games I played. So I sort of felt very invisible and had like no reference point for what my life might look like. Like I know that there'll be a lot of people out there who use fiction as reference points for what's possible in your life, like whether it's mm. Meredith Grey or the cast of Friends or whatever it might be. And I didn't really have that. I was 10 the first time I saw a disabled character on screen, and that was Artie Abrams from Glee. And I remember mm. being so excited because he was this guy, he was singing and dancing and acting and doing all these things that I love to do, but had felt like I couldn't really explore because if there's one space in particular that's not really accessible for disabled people, it's the stage. And I was so excited. And then I think it was like the second season of the show or something, there was a dream sequence that he had in which he stood up and walked and was dancing around like able-bodied. And I was like, wait a minute, mm. that's not possible. And I remember feeling so deflated that this person who I thought understood what it meant to be me and who had overcome some of the obstacles that I was currently drowning in to get to a better place could just put on my life like a costume and throw it off mm. as soon as the director yelled cut but in terms of the actual idea itself it started in 2015 i went to see the pixar film inside out mm -hmm. and i remember feeling so moved and so hopeful by the fact that they'd made this film for kids that talked about mental illness but it did it in a nuanced way it did it in a way that it didn't present emotions as something scary for kids to be afraid of. And obviously there was also these layered lessons for adults in there too. And I remember I went home and I wrote an open letter to the Walt Disney Company. And I published it online and I tagged Mamma Mia and Mia Friedman on Twitter. And I was just going about my day doing normal 15-year-old things, I guess, at the mm -hmm. time. Then I got a reply saying, hey, can we republish this and I was like sure you can and then I got an email a few hours later being like actually we'd like to go a step further and offer you a job that was really cool getting to do that for a year but that definitely opened my eyes to the way the media works beyond all the glitzy stuff that you see and then this Disney petition I kind of put the idea on the back burner for a while while I was finishing school and starting uni and then as my profile kind of expanded after that ABC article I was like hmm might be time to bring this out and dust it off again and see what could happen and I've made some wonderful friends in the disability community online and I said to them what do you think is the most tangible way that we can make this happen? And they suggested talking to change.org, so I did. Then we launched the petition on the 
3rd of December 2020 because it was the International Day of Persons with a Disability. So we figured for this one brief moment in time, the world will be hyper-focused on disability issues. And then we'll go back to being something that people don't think about all that much. But Mm -hmm. while we're here, we'll take the opportunity. And it was also around the time that Sia was facing a lot of criticism for her, I would say, misaligned representation of the autistic community. Mm. So it felt like a topic that people were talking about, the importance of representation. I wasn't expecting it to do much at all. I thought we might get a couple hundred signatures that it would mainly be people that I knew and those people that always support you no matter what venture you're doing because, you know, they They love love you you. and they're your friends and (laughs) it's all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, maybe a few people outside their circle of like mutual friends might get on board, but probably not. And then within the first 24 hours, I think we had 6,000 signatures. And then how do you think that impacted people who read about it or who signed it? What's the impact you think that has had? Hopefully it's made them like stop and go, oh yeah, I, I, I guess you don't see disabled characters for kids. And I guess growing up as a kid, that must feel a bit weird. Like it must make you feel a bit invisible, which is true. It definitely does. And I think I definitely framed it in a very specific and strategic way. Like the choice to have a disabled princess specifically was motivated by the fact that they're the characters who most likely come to mind when you hear the words Disney. But they're also the ones that you see on the lunchboxes Mm. and that they have the toys and the books and the bedspreads and the birthday parties and all that stuff. So I figured like maximum impact Yeah, I would say Disney princesses also mould our idea of beauty. Like if we talk about, like Disney princesses are problematic. And And then if we actually, you know, look through a lens of intersectionality, it becomes almost toxic. Yeah, I obviously don't want to add to that toxicity in any way. So when I'm thinking about the idea that I would hopefully pitch to Disney at some point, who knows? You will, sure you will. Um, I have no doubt. <laughs> it would be really important to me that this isn't like a this girl needs saving situation. Because mm. I think that's a really dangerous narrative that disabled people already have to contend with. I definitely don't want to add to that. So it would definitely not be like the damsel in distress angle. I'd be more interested in going like the Elsa and Moana yes. route of recent times where they've been more empowered women and it's not necessarily about the love story or that being said though I think it's I think it would be important to have some element of love story or deep friendship like that in the film because that sort of relationship dynamic isn't visible to disabled children at all Mm. let alone disabled adults absolutely can we jump back to something you said before about feeling invisible as Mm -hmm. a disabled person could you speak to that yeah so when I was a kid I would and I haven't talked too much about this I would stare at myself in the mirror and be afraid that if I looked too hard I might disappear as well because I didn't know or have access to any disabled adults when I was growing up and the disabled adults that I did encounter in various situations normally be like in a therapy situation so in a situation where you would expect to see a group of disabled people they would generally have quote unquote worse forms of cerebral palsy in that yeah they might be able to walk but their speech or their ability to swallow or stuff like that would be compromised, which was very confusing. And I've only in recent times managed to figure out that I think my brain actually thought 
that with growing up, I would just magically one day either be able to walk mm. or my CP would get worse. Okay. And it meant that I didn't really have any framework for like what my life could look like. Because you couldn't envisage what it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, I couldn't see it. Mm. And then definitely one of, if not the only future that was ever presented to me was as a Paralympian. Because that's the representation of disabled people that you'd previously seen or because someone was suggesting that? Why was that? Both. So I can't tell you the amount of times that I would, as a kid, encounter some variation of the question, so uh, what's your Paralympic sport going to be? And I was like, well, on the one hand, totally flattered that you think I could be at that level to represent my country because like if you compare me to some of the other athletes out there like I am no chance not super sporty not athletic like love watching sport and talking about it and being a part of it that way but playing sport yeah no (laughs) could it have something to do with like the lack of balance coordination like maybe maybe but um yeah I my instinctive response would be, hold on a minute, you don't ask my sisters, like, what Olympic sport they're going to do. Yeah. Or, like, you don't see every able-bodied kid being like, so I'm going to go to the Olympics. Like, it's understood that that's, number one, only going to happen to a very small percentage of people at the highest echelon of their ability. And number two, it's definitely a choice. It's not something you pursue if you're not absolutely 100% convinced that you want it. So not seeing any other futures kind of for myself was really strange and I mean I should say the people who represent Australia at the Paralympics are incredible athletes and Mm -hmm. like I am hugely grateful for what they do for disability representation and visibility and all of that stuff it's just not for me and I felt like when I said that to people I was like letting them down shattering their dreams of you as opposed to them even asking what your dreams were yeah Mm. exactly like that and then like I'd say, no, I want to be a writer, and they'd go, oh. And then you have people telling you that, like, writing's not sustainable or, like, journalism is dying or all of those things. And you're like, well, yeah, but I think, especially in recent times, there are some fabulous women in particular who have got writing and storytelling as part of their creative bow, and they've managed to put a lot of stuff on top of it. Absolutely. It's kept them going. So on the topic of that, what are your dreams? I feel like you're living some of your dreams at the moment in terms of missing perspectives and the profile you're building. I would love to write a book. I'm kind of pulling some things together now. I'd love to just create stuff, I guess. That's that's what I'm happiest is when I'm creating stuff and helping people tell their stories. Like a, I guess icon for modeling my career after would be what Reese Witherspoon is doing. Oh, yes. Um, with her production company. I would love to do stuff like that. And choosing yeah. who you put in the spotlight of what you're creating. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and just being somebody that gives people opportunities, but also creates for themselves. Like, I don't mind what I'm doing as long as I'm creating something. Mm. Have you read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? I have, yes. It's one of my favourites. Yeah, just when you're talking about creating, that book keeps coming into my head because I feel like, you know how she talks about she personifies ideas and she's like how they yes. come to you and they like stick to your back until you make them. Yeah, That's, that I, reminds I, me I of the way you think. Yeah. I'm like, all right, I'll do this thing. I'll I'm deal with you. <laughs> thinking about, yeah. Yeah. Hannah, can we, I want to preface this next question by saying when I was 21, I would not have known how to answer this question 
question and if I did answer it, it probably wouldn't have been very truthful. I'm 25 now, but I feel like I did maybe 10 years of growth in the last three years. Just yeah. maturity, therapy, like just life, right? Yep. So as you know, my Instagram, and I guess what I, what I talk about on the podcast is about our relationship with food movement, our bodies, and ultimately ourselves. And I think, Mm -hmm. yes, while it's well and good to care about body image in a vacuum, I actually care about body image because I think women are oppressed by diet culture and fat phobia, no matter what our size is. So my thing with figuring out those relationships is about actually figuring out how women can be more empowered. So that's kind of the context to why I care so much about this. But could you share about where you're at or where you have been at in the past with body image? I body know. Image is, <laughs> it's body a, it's image a, it's is an a complicated Excel. one for me because obviously in terms of features and stuff, I guess I fit like a conventional mold of some aesthetic of beauty or whatever the hell you want to call it. Mm. But by virtue of the fact that I sit in this thing and I have, you know, a bunch of scars everywhere from surgeries or different stuff like that, it's like, oh, no, we didn't mean we didn't mean you. <laughs> That's mm. this world of beauty and fashion. It's, it's not for you. So you can, like, go away now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a young kid and a teenager, I hated shopping and I would proclaim it loudly to anybody who asked me. And I feel like a lot of people judge and othered me for that because obviously teenage girls are supposed to be in love with shopping and consuming and makeup and all of those things. Mm. But I think my dislike for that kind of stuff came from the fact that when I was in those spaces, I knew that they weren't meant for me like I would look at clothes and be like well it looks good on the rack or whatever but it's not going to look the same when it's sitting on me who is always sitting down whose organs are consistently squished to mm. there's just a, a, a very large disconnect between what things could look like and what they do look like mm. if we did see diverse representation online in clothes advertisements whatever it was would that help I, I think so yeah I think it would definitely help you'd be like Oh, so you can look, quote unquote, like beautiful, confident, yeah, all that kind of stuff while being in my body, which is not something that anyone tells you or makes you feel. And also it comes down to people's perception of you. Like, like I wrote about this for Missing Perspectives recently, but I said that like my conceptualization or like relationship to the idea of dating, for instance, is super complicated mm-hmm. because like I haven't had that yet and... I struggle to see it sometimes because Mm -hmm. like when I was going to high school, boys would ask me out or whatever and then be like, oh, we're only joking Uh, or whatever. Or people would say, well, obviously your partner would have to be disabled. And I'm Mm. like, wait, why? Mm. And then they do the awkward, like, we can't really make eye contact with you thing. And it's like, well, you know, And it's like, oh, there's a lot of things that could be filled in with that, you know, so you you better tell me. But basically the insinuation was that Nobody would find me, I guess, lovable mm. or attractive or, or that whoever the person was would end up being some sort of hero mm. for being with me, which is also a, a narrative that gets pushed around a lot. So that really does a lot for you your body image and your sense of self. I think the concept of worrying about whether you're lovable or worrying about whether someone will find you attractive, I think that's universal, but then it gets exacerbated by your experience in your body and also by other forms of isolation that you experience as well Mm. like 
when you put things on paper, you go, if there was a lineup of girls, like bachelor style, who's going to pick me out of the lineup? Because there's a lot of extra stuff that comes with being me. There's a lot of extra bits and pieces and, and emotional baggage and all sorts of things mm. that come with me. And I'm lucky that I have resources to work through that. Like I have been going to therapy since I was four. Because as it turns out, you need a little bit of therapy when you start to realize that you're different. And that process and all the other forms of kind of physical trauma that have come from surgery and different stuff like that. So we're getting there, but it's a slow process. Exhausting. Yeah. Have you online, you've talked a little bit about the friendships, and I've read this before on your Instagram about the friendships you've made within the disability community. Is there anyone who is a role model who portrays a relationship, say, that you would maybe dream of or want one day? Is there anyone out there who you feel like does inspire you in that way or not right now? Probably Dylan Alcott and his girlfriend are pretty, pretty yes. cool. I'm like, Chantal is so good at like Dylan's great yeah. as well, but I love her content. I think Dylan in particular resonated with me because... Yes, he had that sporting aspect that people expect from a disabled person, but he was also able to diversify that into music and mm -hmm. television and creating a music festival and like that is a lot more my scene than the yeah. than the athletic than the sport. <laughs> yes, like I'll happily watch watch all that and I have yeah. teams that I follow and all of that stuff but just because of the way my body works and the way that my personality is sport doesn't do it for me as to like actively participate in there's a level of control that elite athletes have over their body that I could only dream about mm -hmm. like I'm like I wonder what that feels like like for me when I was really little something that I that I said I wanted to be but I don't think I meant it in terms of like this is actually something that I can see myself doing is I really was obsessed with the idea of being a ballet dancer mm. because I used to look at ballerinas in particular. And obviously, as I've gotten older, I know more about the absolute beasts that they are because of the discipline that they have to show. And I was like, that is the peak of control over your body. Right. And I wish I could have that. Like, I wish I knew what it felt like. But it's like I was at the physio recently and they had me lying on the reformer, Pilates reformer. It was for leg strengthening exercises. And they said, so what we want you to do is we want you to run while you're lying down. And I said to them, yeah, okay, I can do that. But you're going to have to show me how you run because uh, newsflash, haven't done that before. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Oh, yeah. And then I'm doing it. I'm like, oh. I wish people could see your face when you tell these stories. Yeah, I do have a, a, a very expressive. It's so tongue-in-cheek as well. It's great. For anybody listening. Okay, so we've obviously discussed body image, but could we actually talk about your relationship with your body? So I know it sort of seems illusory yes. to separate body and body image, but do you get what I mean in terms of that? Yes, I, yeah. I think so. So my body and I have a... It's it's a complicated relationship. Sometimes it feels like my body has a brain of its own that is separate to mine, especially because cerebral palsy is basically an involuntary movement disorder, which means that I sometimes have very little control over what my body decides to do and when it decides to do it. There can be times where I will tell my body to do something and it's like, 
nope, we're not doing that today. And it could even be that it doesn't know how because the neural pathways have been damaged by the brain injury which caused CP. My body and I have a sort of begrudging relationship in that I'm like, you need to work with me, damn it. This is supposed to help. And also because I, CP causes your muscles and bones to grow at different rates, which causes extreme spasticity or tightness of the muscles. Okay. So I operate at a pretty decent base level of constant pain or discomfort. Mm. And along with that, a pretty constant level of fatigue, just because being in my body and doing the amount of things that I have to do, even just sitting here talking to you, I can feel my body using energy, which obviously doesn't happen at the same level for able-bodied people. Otherwise, naps would be factored into everybody's day. Yeah. And is Um, that how you manage it? Just because obviously you have a fair timetable, I would say, at the moment and your capacity is big. Yes. So it's rest that you need. It's rest, um, exercise, different forms of therapy, massage, all that kind of stuff. I often joke that being disabled is like having a full-time job, but you don't get breaks and you don't get paid. Just because the, the maintenance for my body is pretty constant. Like, I don't have the type of situation where, like, if I leave this, it'll just stay static and maintain Mm. where it's at. Like, if I'm not maintaining it, it's slipping backwards. Okay, so it's just constant. (laughs) Going back to that point about discipline, you probably have a very strong, learned sense of discipline. Which serves me well, I think, because I don't think I would have the opportunities that I do if I hadn't been disciplined. And if I hadn't been that kind of consistent, and I guess to a level somewhat annoying in that I'm going to make you make space for me Mm. until you do. And then, oh, look, there it is. We found it. With the Disney princess petition, like I've worked for a lot of those signatures. It's involved a lot of hours on Twitter of tagging people and talking to them and sending emails. And yeah, I can be very disciplined when I want something. Sometimes that's to my detriment in that I don't really know how to switch off. Mm. I was going to ask you about as much as you rest, because that's part mm -hmm. of your maintenance do you switch off i was the kid who was like why aren't we doing anything well we're just resting we've been busy all week but we can't do that and i think that's also my anxiety not letting me sit with my body i think i'm busy enough now that when i get a day of rest i'm like oh i get it now i get why people have days off and like just veg because you need i'm a lot busier than i used to be and also i think for a while there i was very uncomfortable i would keep myself busy as a means of like making sure that i didn't fall off the deep end Mm. like it used to happen to me that in the big uni breaks or the big summer breaks especially because i really struggled making friends and different stuff that my anxiety and depression would just come and run the show for the six weeks or the three months because i didn't know what to do with myself and that would lead to too much thinking and then Mm. Whoops, we're here again. But obviously, like like I said, I go to therapy, I take medication, I mm. manage in a lot of different ways. But yes, at the moment, I'm busy enough that that has not been a problem for a while. Yeah, it's a funny thing in terms of the busyness, because so many of the people I know who are so inspiring and who do and achieve various things, part of it is that kind of inability to sit still. And whether that's because that's when mental illness creeps up when there's not the doing and the distraction, even though the distraction might be powerful and positive, you know, part of me goes, that's so incredible that you're aware of it and that you're across it and that you're 
clearly exceptional at managing mental and physical health. Part of me goes, Hannah, it's a superpower in a way that that's how you've come in a sense to bring so much of your words and your thoughts and your talent to the world. So it's like that double-edged sword. It definitely is. And I can't take credit for my management of my mental health or my physical health. My my mum will be listening to this podcast going, hey, (laughs) it was me, I did it. (laughs) And it's true. Mum and dad have done an incredible amount of work with me over the years, somewhat kicking and screaming from my end, especially physically. I used to hate that like I would have to do my exercises or that surgery would mean weeks of rehab because I think I just wanted to be like everyone else. And I obviously knew that the kids I was going to school with weren't sitting for hours in hospital waiting rooms or Mm. doing stuff like that. So in terms of managing my mental health too, that's been a rocky, rocky road. I've definitely had some super lows but I think I'm finally now getting to the point where I can manage it somewhat. When I was younger I would often get into these states or like I guess panic attacks they now know them as and it's like all the tools that my psychologist would give me would just fly out the window I like couldn't Mm. couldn't work through it whereas now I'm able to go hold on I can do this thing so I've definitely put my parents and my close family through a lot of heartache to get to the spot of good management where we are now. But I think we're finally turning a corner. There's an element of everyone being like, oh, thank God, she finally figured out how to turn the corner. Without making you want to repeat yourself, because I feel like I can just easily direct people to that ABC article you spoke about writing. What do you want in allies? Well, I want allies who see us as people and as full people, not ju- not just our disabilities. Like, just because I'm in a wheelchair doesn't mean I don't have the same taste in music or the same interest or a love for food as anybody else out there. And I think understanding how powerful accessibility is, whether that's putting captions on any videos you put on Instagram or making sure that there's lift access and that the accessible thing isn't like a huge deal. There have been many places I've gone where in order to use the lift, you have to go to the front, get the key, do the thing, da-da-da. And I'm like, yeah, that helps, but it also makes it a thing. Like, the person should just be able to just do it comfortably and not have to draw the eyes of everybody in the place. But yeah, I think those would be big things. And then also to any parents, please let your kids ask questions. It's so much more helpful if a kid sees me on the street and goes, what's that? And I'm able to say, it's a wheelchair. This is how it works. This is why I can't walk. Then you being like, shh, don't look or Mm. don't bother that lady. And on a certain level, it also brings me entertainment because I get questions like, what planet are you from? (laughs) Or were you born in your wheelchair? And then proceed to lose my mind over the mental image of my mum in labour pushing out a wheelchair little wheelchair there's something also that means if they engage that's normal for that kid they'll learn yeah. they know and then it's not scary yeah and that's a big selling point that I would say in my pitch to Disney is like obviously it has the ability to make disabled kids feel rep- represented and seen for the first time and like be the heroes of their own stories and all that stuff but it also has the power to show able-bodied kids that disability is not something to be afraid of mm. that disabled people are cool people and it has the potential to like teach them basic empathy and tolerance which I feel like if you sow the seed there when they're young children it makes it much easier and much more likely that they're going to grow into better allies as adults. 
Absolutely. I'm really invested in the Disney pitch now. Like, are there any wheels in motion or is that something we're still working on or are you tight-lipped? It's kind of a work in progress. Like, Disney Australia knows we exist, which is great. Okay. But obviously, they're not the ones who make the movies, if that makes sense. Okay. Like, all the big stuff happens in the Californian offices and stuff. So, what we really need is... Uh, some massive like American breakthrough. <laughs> I've been really lucky that I've caught the attention of some wonderfully high profile people. Great. But what I really need is like a like a Reese with a spoon. Yeah, I was about to say, name it. An Oprah or whoever we're going for. Someone who We need a heavyweight at the top. Yeah. Okay. It would become like a news item. That- All right. We'll keep thinking about this because yeah. I feel like once you're in the room, you're there, you'd have them yes. captivated. My argument too is like, if they could just see it, yeah. I, I know that I've got enough of a plan and to be honest, enough of a story in my own head Yes. for what it could be that I could be like, let me show you what I prepared earlier. <laughs> yes. I'm so excited I mean, for you. You're already doing amazing stuff and there's just more good stuff to come. It's definitely not a given that I would be involved in the process, but I would love to be. Yeah. I think as long as any form of media is made with realistic and genuine consultation with the community yes. that it represents or inclusion of them in the framing or the storytelling, then that's the most important. So it doesn't matter if it's not me. I just think if they're going to do it, Disney needs to make sure that the disabled community is involved. Absolutely. Last question, and I know I feel like some stuff you can't actually talk about, but what's coming up next? I won't be going anywhere anytime Mm -hmm. soon. In fact, hopefully you'll be seeing more of me. I hope so too. Yeah. Hannah, you are so captivating and warm and articulate. I actually have been... Thanks, Georgie. ...smiling the whole time while I've been listening to you or getting a little prickle because you've really moved me by how you share your story um, and how you just discuss all of these what are very complex themes but you manage to bring this kind of lightness and humour to them all at the same time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad that we got to do this.